Hi, everybody. This is the next installment of my Revelation series on the podcast. So we're talking about Revelation 2, 1 through 7 today. In other words, we're talking about the first of seven letters to seven different churches. John, of course, is writing these letters from Patmos, and he starts with a church he's very familiar with, which is the church in Ephesus. So let's read the passage, and then we'll talk about a few interesting things in this letter. Revelation 2, 1 through 7 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. By the way, the word Nicolaitans could have referred to a specific group of people, but it's also likely that it referred to a type of people. The word in Greek relates to the Old Testament name Balaam, which would basically mean these people are associated with idol worship and sexual immorality. So the Nicolaitans could have just been a nickname for people who are into that sinful stuff. And then in verse 7, he says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So that's the letter to the church in Ephesus, or to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Okay, so first I want to just clarify, who is this letter from and who is this letter to? In chapter 2, verse 1, it says it's from him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus. But then in verse seven, it says, the spirit says to the churches. There's a co-identification here, right? These kind of co-identifications throughout scripture are where scholars and theologians get the idea of the Trinity. Jesus, the glorified son of man, that moves among the lampstands, right? Because John has set up the picture of Jesus in the midst of the menorah with the stars above it. That's the visual image, is co-identified with the Holy Spirit. So the letters from Jesus and the Holy Spirit's directly involved. Who's the letter to? To can also be interpreted concerning or with respect to. So it says to the angel of the church, but you could also read it concerning the angel of the church of Ephesus or with respect to the church of the, with respect to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Okay. So it's from Jesus slash the spirit to the angel slash the church. He kind of commingles who it's addressed to as well. Now, John is borrowing menorah imagery from Zechariah four is Zechariah four verses one and two. And then again, in verse 10, it, it calls the seven lights, the menorah lights, the stars, the angels, all these things mashed into one. Seven spirits, sevenfold spirit, stars, angels, spiritual beings. 
identified with churches, a.k.a. lampstands, it's all together. Anyway, Zechariah also relates it to the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord that roam the earth. Okay, these are divine beings that keep tabs for the Lord in the Old Testament. So John is meshing all these visuals, and he's probably meshing the identity of the angel and the church that the angel is assigned to as well. Now, a minority of scholars thinks that angels in these seven letters really means messengers or like pastors. But the argument against that would be the word angels, the Greek word angelos, or it's plural, is used 77 times in the whole book of Revelation. And the last 70 times it's used, it's clearly talking about supernatural beings. So why would we assume that in these letters, the first seven times it's used, or eight or whatever, is talking about pastors? So I don't really, you know, you can tell I personally think it's talking about supernatural beings. And I've also heard Michael Heiser talk about how the archangel, 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 I've heard that pronunciation both ways, but the archangel Michael got assigned to Israel. This either happened during the exile when God's glory was removed or the whole time maybe he was assigned to the people of God. So this idea of an angel being assigned to a group of believers or followers of God is not a new idea. It would be a familiar idea to God's people. So that's who it's from and who it's to. Now let me read verse four again. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Okay, so what was the first love that Ephesus was abandoning here? Now, there's different scholarly opinions on this, of course, like everything in this book. There's kind of four different ideas. Some people think it's chronological. You've forsaken the love that you practiced previously. Some people think the word first, however means priority. You've forsaken your most important love, like putting God first, right? And then some people say it's talking about brotherly love, the love they had amongst each other as believers. And still other people say it's the love that they had for unbelievers at first when they were reaching out, when they were putting themselves out there to preach the gospel and to convert others in their town to the faith. So which is it? Well, what do we know about Ephesus, the city? It was considered like the most important city because of its location in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, right? At the time of John's letter, it was considered by most to be the most important because the location was like at a cross section of major trade routes, right? And the city had a huge temple there, Of course, this temple was like for a Greek god, Artemis, a.k.a. Diana. And that temple was like the hub. It also served as a bank. It also served as a place of employment. It also served as a way that people socialized. So this church, this Jesus-following group in Ephesus, was pushing against a lot culturally. And we can see that in Paul's letter to this church, which was written about 30 years before Revelation, Paul commends this church for their brotherly love. And from the looks of the letter in Revelation 2, I don't think they've forsaken their love for God. I mean, he commends them for being loyal and faithful and persevering and enduring, even under persecution. So I don't think they're 
love for Jesus has somehow diminished right after, you know, he commends them for having it and keeping it. So what Jesus is doing is commanding them to go, go back to the way they were demonstrating love at first in some form or fashion. And he threatens to remove the lamp, if not, which may mean removing them as a church, but it may also mean removing the assigned angel. And when I think about that concept of a church having an angelic presence assigned to it, it makes me want to ask, like, have you ever observed a church or a group of believers, a small group, whatever, lose its ability to operate in God's love? Maybe it starts out really accepting, really kind, really open, really loving. And then it slowly starts getting run by control or legalism or fear. How often the positive supernatural activity will cease as well. Maybe this place, it used to be easy to hear from God. It used to be easy to pray. It used to be easy in that gathering to see the works of God, to hear from him clearly, to understand the word. Maybe there were miracles happening there. And then this shift down can sometimes take place when different people get into leadership, when different arguments happen, when different drama starts to happen. And and this whole atmosphere changes to like silliness and, and discord and just goofiness, you know, arguing drama injury, stress. And when that happens, because we've all seen that happen, even if you've just not even been part of the church, but been observing it from the outside over the last decade and how it's interacting with politics. I mean, in my opinion, some churches are not operating in love anymore because they've gotten sucked into being offended and being hateful and being um, so frustrated and so angry and so fearful and so power hungry <laughs> that it it almost doesn't matter if what they're saying is right or wrong anymore because they're not saying it in love. And the Bible commands us to speak the truth in love. So if they feel they're speaking the truth about what's happening politically or culturally in our nation, that's fine, but they have to do it in love. They have to love these people that they're addressing and talking about. And instead there's judgment and condemnation. I wonder if that's what started happening in the church in Ephesus. The reason I wonder that is They were under such heavy persecution in the Roman Empire. I mean, it's illegal for them to exist. Imagine trying to witness to your friend who's still worshiping at the temple of Artemis. When you know that bringing up this gospel, they might turn you in. They might get you killed. Do you think it would be easy to lose the fervor you had at first for sharing the gospel. So I think there's a strong argument to be made that Jesus might be commanding them to repent from how they've maybe shrunk back a little bit about sharing the gospel. Now, the other theory that I think has a lot of credibility here is that when he says you have forsaken your love that you had at first, is he might be saying that, yes, you've got, you've got, you've kicked out some bad theologians. You've kicked out some heretical false prophets. You've been diligent about the truth because that's what he commends them for, right? But in doing so, what if they had become a little bit legalistic or a little bit fearful or a little bit argumentative or a little bit too technical in who they would let in? What if all this 
standing up for the truth that they had to do to preserve the message of the gospel when they first formed? What if it had caused them to forsake operating in love? Have you ever been to a church that's so intent on correct teaching that there's a spirit of arrogance there? There's almost a spirit of fear of any other thought, fear of any discussion, fear of any diversity of theology, even on the minors. What if that was what was happening? What if that's how they were veering away from the love they had at first? So I think those are two good, viable theories. I don't really know. (laughs) I wish I knew more about what exactly Jesus was referring to. But I think that John and I think that the church in Ephesus knew. And, you know, I hope they fully repented and went back to the way they were doing things at first, even if it came at a really, really high cost. Now, here's an interesting passage in Matthew that I think relates. Matthew 24, verses 12 through 14, says, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So here we have Another instance in scripture where it seems like the idea of sharing the gospel and love are being tied together. And he also talks about standing firm to the end, which is how he instructs the church in Ephesus to stand strong, right? And persevere. And that if they do, they'll eat of the fruit of the of paradise, right? So it's it's saying once again, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So I wonder if John's thinking about this sermon from Jesus when he writes this letter. I wonder, was the church in Ephesus letting something slow them down witnessing? Maybe they even started condemning their persecutors, which would be easy to do, instead of being willing to continue lovingly sharing the truth in the face of such hate. I mean, think about when Paul went to Ephesus. There were riots there. It was so politically charged, right? It was illegal for Christians to to practice there. It's hard to share Jesus with someone when they might have you killed if you bring it up. So maybe that's what was going on. So that's the first letter out of seven in the book of Revelation. And it makes me think about how am I doing loving in the form of sharing the gospel. Not gonna lie, this is not my main gift. I do not have the spiritual gift of evangelism as far as I know at all. In fact, I think I hesitate to bring up the topic of my religion, my faith, Jesus as Lord in conversation with non-believers because because of the high risk of it coming across as offensive and gross, of unaware, of non-empathetic, of judgy, of culturally insensitive or even like a superiority thing. Um, Knowing that a lot of people see my faith in a skewed way (laughs) because of how 
my fellow believers or people who say they are my fellow believers act and the the reputation that the church has in this is in this nation right now like largely it's an intimidating thing to try to strategize around how do i bring up the things of god the things he's showing me the gospel the truth the message the the fact of who who he is and how he's revealed himself and the good the good news of how much he loves us and how salvation is available to each of us. I believe in those things, but I don't bring them up a lot with people who don't. And I really, really struggle with repenting from that because what is that supposed to look like, you know? I can kind of tell how people feel about it and I often... I feel like I'm trying to be loving by not creating a conversation that they don't want. It's almost like there's not a green light there. So I don't know how effective it would be or if it would backfire. And I mean, obviously, if the Holy Spirit prompts me directly, I usually do speak up and say something or ask something or start the conversation. But just walking around evangelizing, it's not something that has been in my vernacular so far in life. So I'd be curious to think, hear what you guys think about that. Am I doing the same thing that the church in Ephesus might have been doing? Like, just because it's hard, just because it's out of favor, just because people have the wrong impression, just because it will offend them, just because they may not join me or it may have social implications for me. Or worse, I mean, I don't think that's why I'm not sharing. I think it's because I can tell that their will is not, like their heart's not open. You know, that's that's the people I don't bring it up with. So I don't know. I could be totally, I could really suck at this area of Christianity. I recognize that. It's just something that I really, it's a challenging topic for me. So let me know any feedback on that, y'all. Like, what does it look like to love well and effectively communicate my faith? I want to end with one last scripture passage today, and it's Philippians 2, 1 through 16, and I'm going to read the Amplified Version. It says, Therefore, if any encouragement and comfort is in Christ, as there certainly is in abundance, if there's any consolation of love, If there's any fellowship that we share in the spirit, if there's any great depth of affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love toward one another, knit together in spirit, intent on one purpose and living a life that reflects your faith and spreads the gospel, the good news regarding salvation through faith in Christ. This is kind of exactly what Beth just wrote when she said, your life, your actions speaks louder than words. Your love is visible in your day-to-day interactions with those around you. You're spreading seeds when you don't even know it. That is very true. It says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit through factional motives or strife, but with an attitude of humility, being neither arrogant or self-righteous, regard others as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also the interest of others. Have this same attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Look to him as your example in selfless humility. 
who, although he existed in the form and unchanging essence of God as the one, as one with God, possessing the fullness of all the divine attributes, the entire nature of deity, did not re- regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted, as if he did not already possess it or was afraid of losing it, but he emptied himself by assuming the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. After he was found in terms of his outward appearance as a man for a divinely appointed time, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the Father to the point of death, even on the cross. For this reason, because he obeyed and completely humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in submission Those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, those who are under the earth, every tongue will confess and openly acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, hear this next part, because this is very relevant to today's conversation. So then, my dear ones, just as you have always obeyed my instructions with enthusiasm, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, right? Paul's writing to the Philippians. Continue to work out your salvation. That is, cultivate it, bring it to full effect, actively pursue spiritual maturity with awe-inspired fear and trembling, using serious caution and critical self-evaluation to avoid anything that might offend God or discredit the name of Christ. For it is not your strength, but it is God who effectively is at work in you, both to will and to work, that is, strengthening, energizing, and creating in you the longing and the ability to fulfill your purpose for his good pleasure. Do everything without murmuring or questioning the providence of God so that you may prove yourself blameless and guileless, innocent and uncontaminated children of God without blemish in the midst of a morally crooked and spiritually perverted generation. In the midst of a Nicolaitan generation among whom you are seen as bright lights. Oh, bright lights. Beacons shining out clearly in the world of darkness, holding out and offering to everyone the word of life. I thought that related in several important ways. It's about sticking to your guns. (laughs) Being a light in a dark place, being a lampstand on a menorah in a perverse generation, in a crooked atmosphere, in a sinful environment, in a lost culture, being who you are in Christ fully. We're transformed into love and we shine brightly in the midst and we share the gospel with such humility 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 (laughs) and such bravery jesus wasn't afraid to die for this and he's in us and in my moments of clarity i'm not afraid to die for this either of course there's a whole rabbit trail i could go on about how sometimes fear is involuntary because we're in human bodies, but in my heart, in my soul, you know, this is the thing I live for. So I don't know exactly what the Ephesians had started doing at first and then had forsaken, but it makes me examine my own life and see if there's anything that I had started doing at first in the love and in the strength of God that maybe I've shrunken back from, maybe I've forsaken. Now that I've been a Christian for 31 plus years, am I as fervent and pure about my faith in Jesus and sharing that with my friends 
and loving my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I as clear-headed about what's important? Do I have as much simple faith? I haven't forsaken Jesus. But have I forsaken the type of love I had at first for him and or for other people? So, just like Revelation 2.7 says, I want to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because to the one who is victorious, God will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May we all be victorious even in the face of hardship, just like this church in Ephesus was. Okay, thank you guys so much for watching. God bless you. I'll see you next time.